Welcome back to How They Train. Today I'm joined by Craig Alexander, better known as Crowey. Craig is a three-time Ironman world champion and two-time Ironman 70.3 world champion. He held the course record at the Ironman World Championships after his win there in 2011 in one of the most impressive performances the triathlon world has ever seen. Craig was described as the best runner in Ironman history by Chris McCormack, one of his closest rivals and two times Ironman World Championship himself in our last episode. And I don't think you'd find many people who would disagree with that. Craig, thanks for joining me, mate. That's quite the intro, Jack. Thanks for having me. No, it's, uh, it's, a, it's an honor to have you on. Um, like I've sort of said to you in, in private, um, you, were the, you were the reason I, uh, I actually got into triathlon. Oh, mate, I'm flattered. I think, you know, um, when you're racing and you're in the midst of your own career, you're so sometimes you don't see the forest for the trees, you know, you're so caught up in it. But I think um, it's one of the nice things I've enjoyed the last couple of years is, you know, meeting people and talking about their own triathlon journey. And, and when you hear that you may have inspired them, I think that's, that means as much as any of the, the good victories. Um, you know, of course, you want to win races, but if you've impacted people in a positive way, that's, that's a nice feeling as well. Hey, uh, like I mentioned in my intro, um, I had Macaron, uh, who I guess is like from the outside looking in, probably seen as your, your biggest rival, um, whether, whether you and him say it like that or not is, a, is another story, I'm not sure. Um, and he, uh, he just told so many stories about that sort of 2006 to, to 2010 period where, where you and him were really probably the, the, the two best Ironman athletes in the world, maybe with a, with a couple others thrown in the mix there. Um, so I'm really excited to hear your sort of side of, of a lot of those stories and a lot of those races and, um, and about all the work that went into that, that period of, 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 of you guys dominating. Um, if I could take you back to, to maybe prior to 2007, where you debuted at the Ironman world championships, um, and, and came second on debut, do you remember your, your training block leading into that race? You know, seven, yeah, I had a great training block. I was probably as fit in terms of heart and lung fitness as I've ever been, I think. Um, you know, at, at that point, triathlon wasn't as polished as it is now, I think. Um, I'm not sure what, what Maka had to say about it, but I, I guess looking at the current day athletes, you know, their positions on the bike and all the testing they do, we, we didn't do a lot of that um, 15 years ago. I think we trained very hard. There's no question about that. But um, I know leading into 07, you know, I wasn't as focused on bike setup and, and a lot of the other things that certainly took my attention later in my career, but I, I was physically very, very fit and in, uh, in great shape, I think, to, to tackle that race. What, what I lacked was experience, of course, going in the first time. Um, you know, you can speak to a lot of people, and I did. I spoke to everyone who, who was willing to give me their time trying to fast track you know, my experience, I was 33, 34 years of age. That's quite young, I guess, to be doing your first Ironman World Championships, quite young to be debuting over there. And But I started my whole career late, so I guess everything was a little later than normal. Um, I didn't come through as a junior or any of those things. So, But, yeah, what I remember about 07 is being in really good uh, physical condition. Do you, um, do you remember sort of like the specifics that, that went into that build into, into the 07 um, World Champs? I do, mate. Yeah, I um, right up until 12 months before, I was probably still toying with the idea of going to the Olympics in Beijing. Um, you know, I'd 
up until I was six, I'd never done a race longer than a half Ironman. Um, all my racing was Olympic distance, sprint distance and half Ironman racing. And I didn't do my first Ironman until I was seven. And, you know, in 2005, I, I won a big race in the US. Um, at the time, it was the highest prize person in the history of our sport. It was a very prestigious race, invitation only over the Olympic distance. And I had beaten both at the time, both the Olympic champions that our sport had on the men's side, Simon Whitfield and Hamish Carter. Um, I beat them both in that race and <clears throat> sort of fancied my chances at, at potentially going to Beijing. You know, I was, I was having quite a bit of success on the US circuit over the Olympic distance. In 04, I won a few big races over there and, and beat a guy I consider one of my biggest rivals um, as well, Craig Walton, who used to dominate a lot of the Olympic distance racing, particularly at um, in the non-drafting format. And I was able to, to take his scalp at LA and Chicago, which were the two big non-drafting um, big city races. So, you know, I guess, you know, six, I didn't really know where my future lay. I, I certainly wasn't thinking Ironman as such, um, but I'd never really immersed myself in the ITU racing. I only did one or two a year. Um, I predominantly raced on the US circuit, even though it was all Olympic distance racing. It was just a different sport back then, you know. Um, if you wanted to do short course races and particularly big money short course races, you went to the US. That's where those races were. So that's where I, that's where I went and didn't have to really deal with national federations or any of that. Just just race the races I wanted to do. But I, I, I did really... Um, tinker with the idea of going to Beijing and right up until about halfway through 2006. And then for a number of reasons, you know, I guess it was a little bit of politics and administration and, and things I didn't understand. I just dealing with the Federation always felt hard for me. And, you know, I was meant to go to a Beijing test event. Uh, it was an ITU Olympic distance race on the, the proposed course for the Beijing Olympics. And I got picked to go to that race um, I think they had to pick four or five Aussie men and Aussie women and then for some reason I got left off the start list so I just had had enough with sort of that style of racing and um, just jumping through those hoops so I decided to go to the 70.3 worlds um, which they were having for the first time so half Ironman racing had been around for a long time but 2006 was the first year that they had sort of an officially sanctioned world circuit, which culminated with a world championship race, which that year was in Clearwater, Florida. So I, I had, did have my heart set on going to that race, but as I just said to you, I was still sort of toying with the idea of Beijing. And then when I got left off the, the start list for that race in Beijing, I just thought, you know, I'll just put all my eggs into the 70.3 worlds. Um, so focused on that for the second half of the year and, and glad I did actually, because um, you know, I was lucky enough to go on and win that race, which qualified me for Hawaii the following year. So that, I guess that was my pathway to Kona in 07. And, you know, I, I did have a training plan, um, which I sort of devised myself, but as fate would have it about one or two days before I was, I was meant to start my final push phase into Kona that year. So it was about, I want to say it was July, around July, and I was up in Boulder, Colorado. Um, ironically, I got invited to Craig Walton's house for a barbecue. He was living up there and training in Boulder, and I went over to his place, and he had a book on his coffee table 
uh, I think it was called The Law of Running. Um, and it was really a, a book about running, but it had a lot of training plans in it. And one of the training plans was Mark Allen's training plan that he used um, leading up to Kona, his last sort of three, three or four months leading into it. And I flicked straight to that chapter on Mark's when I saw it in the index. And, and it was very interesting, the plan that I had written for myself and sort of touched base with a lot of different people who I looked up to and who I respected to get their feedback um, to sort of devise this training plan. It was very similar to what Mark had done, very similar in terms of the volumes, um, the way his week was structured, his key workouts, um, the way he built up to what he called a push phase, um, which I had sort of penciled in for my program as well. And that gave me a lot of confidence because up until that time, I, yeah, I was, I'd never done an Ironman. As, and as I said to you, I'd never done a, a race longer than really half Ironman. Um, so, yeah, you're, you're stepping into uncharted waters for sure. But reading what Mark's plan had been and having spoken to people like Walshie and McKeely and getting a fear, feeling for what they had done, um, yeah, that sort of gave me some confidence that I was on the right, right path. And, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a pretty comprehensive program. I think the volume's off the top of my head. I know that's, that was your question. I think I was... I backed the swimming off a little bit. So I was only going to swim about 20 kilometers a week in that period. Um, I was biking uh, around 700. I was averaging about 700 K for about four weeks and running at a, averaging about 120 kilometers of running, which was by far more than I'd ever done. Um, I probably, yeah, almost doubled the bike mileage and the run mileage. I want to say I used to hover around 80 kilometers a week. Um, but got it well up over a hundred for that. And, you know, I was confident I could handle it. Um, you know, having that physio degree, like I did, I knew the importance of recovery. So I was just really uh, determined to make sure that I was getting enough sleep, eating well, you know, getting a lot of massage, um, working in the gym on sort of functional movements and trying to keep my body healthy. So I, yeah, I had a, I put a really high price on recovery because I knew, you know, that would, probably make or break the whole training regime but you know even you, you get through a workload like that and a training plan like that it does give you confidence but uh, you know I still turned up in Kona as a rookie and wondering what would happen not knowing and and when you um when you race that day so you, you obviously ended up coming second and and um uh, to, to Chris McCormack who we who we talked about when you sort of were leaving that race and, and in, the, in the, the time sort of immediately after, did you reflect on your training and think, well, that's sort of exactly how I want to go about this next year? Or did you leave thinking, okay, I'm going to change this, 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 this to make sure I win next year? You know what? I didn't change too much. I, I was, as I said to you, I, I was really happy with the physical conditioning going in. Um, and that was reinforced by the performance. I think what I learned was mentally how, how much more I could push. I, f I feel I raced very, very conservatively, um, as you do. I mean, you know, it's easy to throw caution to the wind when you've been there once or twice, uh, or even just once, dip your toe in once. And, you know, it's not like I had an extensive uh, history in Ironman racing. So, yeah, I, I just think... Uh, I left there thinking that that training plan actually was pretty good. Uh, maybe can make a few adjustments, um, some fine tuning, because I always like to progress things year upon year. So whether you progress the mileage or just progress it in terms of adding 
things that may be a bit more specific, maybe progress by increasing the intensities a little bit. Um, so I always like to have this thought in my mind that I had to progress things, even if it was only a few percent. I wanted to make the training sort of trend upwards, so to speak. Uh, just just a, just an idea I had in my head. And but what I walked away from that first race was was with a lot more experience for sure. And thinking, and and also look, I. I hurt myself leading into that race, you know, seven, bending over to pick my daughter up out of her cot. I tweaked my back a little bit and I was getting referred pain into my knee. And I, that happened like uh, probably only 10 days out from the race. So all the work was done. Um, and I was lucky I met uh, a guy, an ART therapist from Toronto, actually, who was I, four or five days out, I couldn't run. I had no confidence that I would finish the race. And he, he, I think he treated me on Monday of race week and said, no, no, I know what's wrong here. I think I can fix it. Gave me a lot of confidence and then treated me each day. And then by Thursday, so two days out from the race, I did my first run. He said, just don't run more than 20 or 30 minutes. And it was the first pain-free run I had had since I, I hurt my back 10 days before. And yeah, I just think all those little things. So what, what you come out the other side learning is that you know, what happens in the last week to 10 days, you've really got to look after yourself, but also the work's already done um, and not to panic too much. And I think there are things that you can only really learn by going through. So, yeah, I, was, I, I doubted getting off the bike that year. I thought, well, how's this going to impact? Am I, you know, is it going to be a really detrimental impact? And, and really it had no impact at all, to be honest. And I, I forgot about it probably five or 10 minutes into the marathon and then didn't think about it again until 30 K and then thought, well, you know, I'm going to make it clearly. So all that worry in the week leading up to it was probably just an extra stress that I didn't need. So there are a lot of the things that I learned the first year, not only the training, but just how to manage yourself that last week or two, but you know, some lessons are hard learned because you still make mistakes moving forward. And, um, you know, just hopefully you can, you can get things figured out and, and not make the same mistakes again. Hopefully if you make mistakes, they're different ones. Yeah, well, you still ran, I think, like two forty-five that day. So <laughs> yeah, I had a I had a good run. I had a good run that day, and and I finished with a lot in the tank. So I think that's what I took away most from that. I mean, it was Chris's sixth or seventh race there, and you know he went deep that day, and it was a great performance. So you know he, he thoroughly deserved that victory. What I walked away was with a, an understanding of how to race it a bit better, how to manage myself around the course, and you know, that I could go a bit harder, a bit earlier, particularly in the marathon. So, and it was very tactical on the bike that year as well. So I think, you know, in 07 was interesting because yeah, so many things happened. I remember going down to the swim start on the Wednesday before the race, just to swim the course. Like I did, you know, two or three mornings during race week. I would, uh, that was a bit of a ritual of mine. I like to swim on the course early in the morning and there'd been a huge thunderstorm the night before um, you can get those crazy storms in Kona sort of tropical storms where a lot of water falls in a short period of time and I was walking down I got down to the pier and I, I ran into someone I knew and they said oh you're not heading in for a swim are you and I said yeah I, I am actually and he said to me you know when it rains here in Kona all the runoff the stormwater runoff goes into the bay and the water can be dirty so it's probably a good idea not to swim the next morning after those storms. So I, I didn't, I actually went to the pool instead, but a lot of people did and a lot got sick. Um, you know, I remember my memories of 07 race mornings turning up and just arriving in transition. It's still in the dark and Faris Al-Sultan who'd won, you know, five 
and I think he'd finished third or second the year before in 06, he was already on a drip. He was on a stretcher. He was getting, he was leaving the race before it had even started. Um, he, he got sick from swimming in the bay. Cameron Brown, I think he pulled out. I don't even think he started that year. I know Ruth Kabiki, who'd finished third a year or two before, he had a couple of podium finishes. Um, the Belgium athlete, he pulled out that year. And, and the big one was probably the, the defending champ, Norman. He pulled out about, the rumour was that he was sick. Um, but, you know, a lot of rumours float around in race week. And, but yeah, he, he was vomiting on the bike apparently from like 10 kilometres into it. And yeah, he only lasted, oh, I want to say 30 or 40 kilometres that year. So, you know, five, I want to say five or six guys who'd finished in the top 10 the year before, you know, six, including two guys from the podium, were out of the race in 07 immediately. So that opened, opened things up a lot, I think, for Chris and for myself, you know, and, and it became a bit of a tactical bike ride that year as well. I don't, I don't know if it was because Farris and Norman weren't there and they were normally two of the stronger guys uh, on the bike. Um, yeah, it was my first year there. So I was sort of just sort of learning the ropes. But, yeah, there's, there's a lot of things. I, I know walking away from 07, I just felt like I'd learned a lot, not only with my training. I, I felt like my training plan going in was a good one but also just how to sort of manage yourself and really wrap yourself in cotton wool that last 10 days or two weeks. And you sort of mentioned earlier how in, um, in 06, you weren't sure whether you were going to go the Olympic path or, or, or where your, where your triathlon future was going, but walking out of the, the 07, um, Ironman world championships, did you know, okay, from here on in, I'm, I'm all eggs in the let's win the world champs basket or. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know what? It was a different sport when I started. I mean, the first triathlon I ever saw was Hawaii on television. And that's what attracted me to the sport in the first place. And I watched that race on TV for years before I ever did a triathlon. And then because, you know, athletes like Welshie and McKeeley were doing so well in the US, you know, I'd, I'd seen the race in St. Croix, that famous half Ironman race on television. I'd seen the race uh, in Chicago, um, the big Olympic distance race. And I'd also seen the Alcatraz on, on TV. So I was aware of those bigger races and Hawaii was really the one that lit the fire in me from the beginning. So for me, it was always about that. Um, I just think it makes sense when you start in the sport, you, you know, you start, it's like doing an apprenticeship and you, you learn your craft and, you know, the first events that were accessible to me were sprint and Olympic distance. So that's what I did. And they were good. They were great, challenging races. You know, it was about going fast. And, you know, I think if you look at the history of, of the sport, all the people who do well in Hawaii have, have done well at short course racing. Um, it's almost a prerequisite. So, I mean, even you can look at what's going on in the sport now and it's, it's not really a surprise. It, it sort of makes sense. So, yeah, no, but I, know I, was, I was really enjoying the racing in the US. Uh, but for me, all paths would, would eventually lead to Kona. And, yeah, when I left, you know, seven, I kind of knew that that's where my future lay in the sport. And, and I knew that's where it was always going to end up anyway, because that was my passion. I didn't, you know, triathlon wasn't in the Olympics uh, when I first started. And then when it got in, there was talk it might only be a demonstration sport. They, they weren't sure what was going to happen. I mean, looking back now, I think our sports inclusion in the Olympics is one of the best things that's happened. I, I love the fact that triathlon's in the Olympics and, you know, six Olympics on from Sydney where we made our debut. If, if you're a 20 or a 25-year-old triathlete, I mean, you've grown up with that and that's what you've watched and, and really that's where you should go. Um, 
But for me, I watched Hawaii, so that's where I wanted to go and that's where I ended up. So, yeah, after those seven, all eggs were definitely in the Kona basket for, for the following years. And then in 08, um, so your second year there, you obviously went on and um, and won the world championship. So can you sort of maybe take me into that year? Um, so you, you've come second on debut in 07 and, and go on to win it later on in the year in, in 08. What did your training look like through that year? Did it did it differ much? Is there anything you can remember? Um, in particular, like, do you remember specific sessions that you would do um, that were just targeted around Kona? Yeah, so, I mean, I was kind of, I, I still went out and got a lot of advice from people because um, that was just my way. That's I like to do that. But ultimately, I, I felt like I'd make the decision. Um, at the time, I was working with a coach called Nick White um, who worked under Chris Carmichael, Carmichael Training Systems. And it was, it was good. I got introduced to Nick um, and he actually... I think actually, I think I worked with him in 07. He was the first guy who got me to put a power meter on my bike. So I started, I didn't train with power until 07. So the year I debuted in Kona was the first year I had a power meter on my bike. Um, before that, I trained without power and without a heart rate monitor. So did everything to rate of perceived exertion. But Nick got me to put a power meter on and he was a good coach for me because we we're roughly the same age. Um, he was a good communicator. And yeah, he, he sort of knew my background, my, my education with physio. And yeah, he would ask questions. We would, we would throw ideas back and forward. And he always had really great insights and awesome inputs. So after, I mean, I thought I was the one who really formulated that plan in 07. And then we looked at it and he said, yeah, I think we should just do it again. Very similar. And um, we implemented a couple of different things. So, so the year started pretty much the same. I think I... Came home after Kona in 07, um, had some time off, got back into training um, the way I always used to with, you know, a couple of sessions a day, nothing structured and, you know, jumping in with some swim squads, doing some mountain biking, um, did a little bit of ski paddling, no structure. And, you know, I, I might ride for four hours if I was with a group or I might ride for 30 minutes to a coffee shop and back in that first couple of weeks back into it. Then I got a little bit more structure and I just, threw in a lot of volume um, through sort of late November up to Christmas, um, some longer rides. Uh, even when I was in that sort of base building period, I still liked a bit of intensity. So I'd go out on some harder group rides, which we used to have around where I lived once or twice a week. You know, even if in those group rides, you're not trying to shoot off the front and, you know, max your power out, you can still sit in the group and get sucked along at, you know, like 45 or 50 K an hour. So it was, good for your leg turnover and you know you you weren't just going completely easy all the time I like to always mix a bit of that in but yeah late November up until Christmas I, I was more of a base building three longer rides a week a couple of longer runs usually in the hills or always in the hills I like that like to get in the hills um, and then I would I would do another I'd get through Chrissy and New Year um, still training but obviously the festive season a um, bit of family time and then yeah, launched from about January 2nd into another little base building phase, I think for about three, three weeks there in the hills again, still throwing in a, some tempo work. Um, but I always like to see back in those days, you only had to race one Ironman a year, Hawaii, if you qualified. So my goal into 08 was only to do one Ironman, which was Kona. 
I wanted to race a lot of Olympic distance and half Ironmans earlier in the year. And that's what I'd done in, in, in 07. Um, I think I, I raced 14 times and two of them were Ironman races, Ironman Australia and Kona. But the other races, most of them are Olympic distance and half Ironman, or so all of them, all of the remaining ones. And that's what I wanted to do moving forward into 08. So my training quickly changed sort of in February to some more threshold sort of work. And I targeted a race, I think, late February or early March, I think, was my season kickoff. From memory, it might have been the Aussie long course champs in Huskisson or might have even been a 70.3 race up in Singapore. Um, but, yeah, so I did drop the volume back and just started working on the intensity, which is what I like to do. Um, so I was doing a lot of threshold sessions, five by five minutes on the bike and running, eight by three minutes, same thing on the bike. That was my sort of staple session. Um, and running as well and then then went into a block of racing so sort of through march april i'd usually get two two or three races in you know one of those at least one of those was an olympic distance one i typically used to start my season with in the u.s was st anthony's which was a big olympic distance race and then i would go to st croix the week later which you know at the time it was the probably the premier half ironman race you'd do so uh yeah i did those two early in the year and then we'd settle in boulder and again i just i went on a i was more on a sort of threshold building focus at that point nick had me doing eight by three minutes on the bike on consecutive days which was something i'd never done um backing up threshold sessions like that particularly at altitude because i wanted to race the lifetime fitness race that was sort of my big target race for the middle of the year in 08 the the big money olympic distance race um, so, yeah, in that race, obviously, you're locking horns with the likes of Craig Walton and Greg Bennett and Simon Whitfield, um, Hamish Carter. Actually, Hamish had retired by 08, but that was a staple on his program usually. So, yeah, if you wanted to get in the mix in that race, you had to, you had to be competitive over the Olympic distance. So, really, that was the training focus sort of from February, um, February, March up through that first uh, racing block and then St. Anthony, St. Croix, and then get to Colorado, the altitude, I would always have a, a week or 10 days quite easy where I'd top the volume up again, but not a lot of high-end work. And then, yeah, hit the threshold work again for some racing sort of late June or through July um, or late June, early July. That was my program usually. So I used to do a race up in Canada in late June and then hit the lifetime fitness race the first week in July. And then I would do, actually, one thing I would always do usually, well, not usually always, that's a that's sort of a contradiction, isn't it? I, I would do it. Um, I think I did it in 08, 09, maybe, maybe even 2010. I would do lifetime fitness. And then the next weekend I would do the Vineman 70.3, which was quite a hilly, hard, competitive 70.3 race. And then the following weekend, another 70.3. So I'd race on three consecutive weekends in early July. Olympic distance, half Ironman, half Ironman. And what I would do is I'd, I'd be training fairly specifically for the Olympic distance race. But when you're in great Olympic distance shape, that's when you're most competitive over the half Ironman distance. So, yeah, I think I want to say in 08, I came third in lifetime fitness. I think it was third. And then went and won um, Vineman, I think from memory. All these years blend into each other. It was a long time ago now, but... um. <laughs> What I would do is after the 70.3 or the, the half Ironman environment, I'd take the week pretty much off. I'd just have a couple of swim sessions. But pretty much that would be my mid-season break. And then I would go and race that 
the, the second of the half Ironmans on the Sunday, travel home from that and then straight into my um, Kona block, which would usually start, yeah, the last week of July. And it would go right up until two weeks out from 70.3 Worlds or my last test race before Kona. So that, that was the, the structure. Um, hit those three races in early July, Olympic distance, half Ironman, half Ironman. And then from that second half Ironman, that was launching straight into my Kona block, um, which is four or five weeks. and would take me right up until the end of August, early September. And then I'd usually have a two-week sort of adaptation period where I'd come off the volume a little bit and try and freshen up for a race in mid-September, which was often a 70.3 race up in Canada, Muskoka. It was on a very hilly, hilly course and very humid, so similar to Kona. So I think it was a good test of your, your Kona training Kona fitness and then that left you four four weeks until Kona so then I'd up it again for two two bigger weeks and then two week taper into Kona so that was the structure that I used in 08 which was similar for a few years in a row there yeah so with that block um sort of like the four or five week uh sort of Kona specific block were, were all the weeks fairly similar do you remember what you would actually do in terms of swim bike and run specifically in that block yes yeah, I remember every session every day. So I would. Oh, wow. I had race simulations or big brick sessions on the Wednesday and the Saturday. And I also rode four hours Monday, Monday and Friday. So the Wednesday, Saturday rides were long, usually five to six or six and a half hours up in the hills, high altitude. Um, four hour rides Monday, Monday and Friday. Tuesday and Thursday were harder sessions on the bike. So on the indoor trainer, um, usually hitting up some sort of threshold efforts. And, and if that was the Tuesday, then the Thursday was a motor pace uh, behind the motorbike. Long runs Thursday and Sunday. Sunday was also a double run day. Swimming Monday to Friday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, each day with the squad and often a, a recovery swim on the weekend as well. So yeah, it was a, my, my, my training weeks in that period were 40 hours plus. Uh, and I'd, I'd get, I'd get in the gym three, at least three times a week as well. So yeah, it was, it was interesting. I mean, it's, it's like having an equalizer, a sound system equalizer. You, you're dialing up and down intensities and volumes. You've also got to factor in altitude when you're at altitude because that's another big stress on your body. Um, and I always seem to respond well to altitude. So yeah, I enjoyed the training up there and I could still, uh, the altitude that Boulder was at, I could still hit some really decent intensity um so and if i wanted to go higher it was easy to go up much higher as well because boulders positioned in what they call the front range it's sort of where the farming plains that have sort of sort of gained altitude from kansas all the way to the rockies it's where they actually hit the rockies and then it sort of goes straight up boulders right there so it's a nice uh, array of training grounds you can go out east into the rolling farmland but still at altitude or you can go west straight up into the mountains and get up to much higher altitudes very quickly. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd factor all those things into the training. Um, of course, the intensity work was always done at, at sort of Boulder's altitude, no higher. Um, but, yeah, it's a juggling act, and, and everyone's so different, you know. I mean, some people respond to altitude uh, a lot better than others, so they get that really nice bump in fitness, uh, increase in sort of red blood cell count. You know, I trained with, when I used to get to altitude, I used to have to take seven to 10 days where I could still do some volume, but I couldn't really get the heart rate up. Otherwise it would knock me around. 
but I trained with some people who could arrive in altitude and you know, day one, just get straight into it. So I think it's about working out, um, you know, your own physiology and, and what works well for you. Uh, and that, that's the challenge, I think, in sport in general, because, I mean, we're all different, not only physiologically, but metabolically with nutrition, emotionally, mentally. Um, that's the thing we're all trying to unlock, I think, as athletes, you know, what works best for each of us. And there's a lot of rules of thumb and, and general trends that do work uh, in general. But, you know, it's fine-tuning them for yourself. That's, that's the real secret sauce, I guess. And, um, but, you know, I remember that, that. So in 07, my, my big training block was four weeks. But in 08, I, I, you know, I mentioned to you that I like to progress things. So in, in 08, I thought, well, I'll add a week onto it. If, I, if I'm feeling good at the end of the four weeks, I'll add a week onto it. And, and I must say, I, I felt like in 08 that I coped with that block a lot better. Um, so that, to me, was a sign that my body was second year into my Ironman career, my body was adapting really well and adjusting to the workload and the volume and absorbing it. Um, it was hard, but I felt like I was absorbing it and uh, could feel the fitness gains coming. And, you know, when I got to the end of the fourth week of my, my big block, I added another week to it in 08. Yeah, so that was my little progression or one of my little progressions that year. And, yeah, headed up to Muskoka uh, for one-week taper this year, that year. And, um, yeah, had a, had a good race up there. I uh, won the race feeling really strong in a very competitive field of really good athletes, mainly 70.3 specialists, actually. And I just, yeah, I, had, I felt like I had the speed and the conditioning um, on the bike and the run. And, yeah, I, I, I always actually, my, when I come down from altitude, I, thinking back over my career, I always felt like I had good races when I'd come back to sea level. And that was, I remember in Muskoka that year, it was a very, very hilly run. In fact, it was so hilly. I think I ran a 111 but it was a brutally hilly course, a lot of very steep uphills and very steep downhills. Um, they changed the course for the following year. A lot of people complained, apparently. They didn't like how hard it was. So when I went back in 09, it was still a challenging course, but certainly not as, not as brutal as it had been the year before. But, you know, for me, getting through a course like that and running a 111 or whatever it was, I felt, and I felt like I was only in second or third gear as well. That gave me a lot of confidence knowing that Kona was my next race in a month, I felt like I had a lot of strength in my legs and, and I felt my heart and lungs were, were in a good place as well. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was the block in 08 and went back up to, from Muskoka, went up to Boulder only for a couple of days just to pack up and then we headed out to, um, headed out to Kona for three and a half weeks. So, you know, my decision, I guess, from a training standpoint was to sort of give up the benefits of altitude because really you want to stay at altitude as long as you can and you, you sort of lose the benefits after 10 days or two weeks. But I just felt the racing Kona was more about, um, for me at that point in my career, it was more about dealing with the conditions, uh, the heat and the humidity more so than, you know, being cardiovascularly as the fittest that I would be all year. Um, I just felt, you know, having some sort of physiological um, adaptations to the heat, those those changes that you get, you know, the increased plasma volume and the, the increased sweat rate and the, and the way you, the composition of your sweat changes when you train in the heat more. I thought for me, that was be more important. Yeah. So I, um, I guess I compromised on the altitude, but yeah, paid dividends because I had a good race out in Kona that year. I, um, I have so many questions about everything you've just said. Um, so I'm going to try and hit them all. Um, firstly, uh, 40 hours a week, that that's, 
you know, if you were hitting 40 hours a week for four or five weeks in a row, that's, um, that's numbers most people sort of would really struggle to get their head around. Um, to do that, how long were your long rides and, and, and how long were your long runs? My long rides at the start of the, the four-week block were six hours, six and a half hours on, on a Wednesday and a Saturday. My long run on a Thursday was about an hour 40. And then my long run on a Sunday was about two hours to 2.15. I'd usually try and keep it in that range. And then I'd do a second run on the Sunday though. So yeah, and, and the second Sunday run was more of a tempo run um, at Ironman pace or a bit quicker. So yeah, the, the hours are mental, but you know, I'd build up to it. And, you know, looking back, was it crazy? Maybe it was a little crazy. Maybe, you know, if, if I had a sports scientist sitting next to me, they might say, well, there was no need for that. And potentially from a physiological standpoint, then, you know, there might be a good argument to say I did overdo it there, but I guess that's where the a self-awareness comes into it. And, and I knew what would limit me in Kona was confidence and my mindset. You know, I always felt like I was lacking experience and I was behind the eight ball. I felt that at the start of my career, because a lot of the guys I was racing, like your Craig Waltons and your Bennetts, your Trent Chapmans, Chris McCormack, Chris Hill, you know, it was a golden generation of super talented superstars, really. And I've left most of them out. There's a lot more, you know, at that point in, in, I guess, triathlon in Australia, you had Greg, Brad and Miles with the big three. And then you had a lot of really talented athletes knocking on the door. Um, about to take that next step when I came into the sport and you know I felt I was I was well behind those guys I didn't come through as a junior I didn't have the pedigree um, that they had in you know a lot of those athletes had come into triathlon with really good accomplishments and resumes from usually swimming or running or sometimes even both sort of state and national medals through high school and, and I didn't I didn't have that. So I always felt I was behind those other guys. And it was the same when I eventually stepped up to Ironman. I, I think I bridged the gap in Olympic distance and half Ironman racing. It took some time because <laughs> there's no, there's no escaping that you've got to put your hours in, you know? So, you know, I look at the Norwegians now and, you know, Christian's in his late twenties, but he's been training at a very high level for a decade. You know, I heard some stories of him coming to Australia. I think it was on an ITU development camp for development athletes 10 years ago or more now. Um, so he would have been a teenager and already training to a quite a high level. So, you know, you, there's no escaping. That's what you need as an endurance athlete. I think a lot of the athletes at the highest level are talented. You need to be to win those titles and the medals. And, but it comes down to accumulating the training over the weeks and the months and the years. And I think that mindset that I had that I was, you know, a late starter. And then when I jumped up to Ironman, you know, Chris and Norman and Farris and Cameron and Ruka and Lieto and Simbali, they'd all been doing it for five or 10 years. I hadn't. So I, I felt I had to, I don't know, I had to fast track things, which is hard to do. As I said, it's impossible. You need to log your hours. But for me, I think I got a lot of confidence out of doing that big block and potentially, you know, like I say, there's an argument to say it might have done more harm than good physically. I know Dave Scott used to say to me all the time, some of these sessions just don't make sense, some of this training, but it made sense to me. It gave me mental confidence because I felt if I can handle this, I can handle anything. So I guess that's where my approach wasn't scientific. I, you know, some point of my programming 
wasn't even about the physical. It was more about strengthening my mental armory because I felt that's what I needed. I was lacking confidence. I, I put the other guys on a pedestal. I knew how good they all were. You know, I'd, I'd seen athletes like Mark Allen take six or seven years to win Hawaii, same with Welsh, same with Maka, and I knew how good they all were. So I knew how, how tough it was to go to that race. And, yeah, and I think a lot of that was those thoughts were the inspiration for those 40-hour weeks. Um, and don't worry, I, was, I knew how hard they'd be, which is why I just, yeah, I just was so um, on point with my recovery. You know, we had young kids at the time, so I had great support from my wife. <clears throat> I would get, you know, seven or eight hours sleep every night, <clears throat> excuse me, and, you know, when the kids would have an afternoon nap, I would, I would have a, a nap as well. I would, you know, Neri would time their nap with my training so I could get a rest, and, yeah, it was really a team effort. So I was able to get a 90-minute nap usually most afternoons, uh, which you need with that kind of workload and just eating a lot, eating all the time, supplementing between meals with protein shakes, two, three a day, bananas, berries, protein powder. I'm just getting extra calories in, um, just hydrating. Boulder's very hot in summer. So, yeah, you just, you've got to be I, – I, I knew it was a, a very um, – narrow margin of error that I could easily with those that sort of a training later overstep the mark and ruin my racing Kona weeks and months later so I was determined to get everything right I was getting a massage every second or third night I was in the ice baths every day sometimes twice a day I was in the Normatec compression boots oh, every day lived in those things every part of my day was about either training or recovering um, so I knew firsthand obviously how tough that those training I mean I can remember you know seven getting two weeks into that four-week block thinking oh I've got two weeks to go I don't you know just driving to the pool some days thinking I just don't know how I'm going to get through today I don't even know how I'm going to get through this next session but you do you get through it you warm up you get through it and it gives you resilience and confidence and yeah so that's part of part of those training weeks I would, I'd like to tell you they were scientifically designed but a lot of it was I think for other reasons. And so I guess like what I'm taking away from this is in my chat with Maka and you, you've both said very similar things around that. Um, you guys won Kona in 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11. So five years in a row, it was one of you two who won Kona. Um, and, and you were both doing that same thing of, of training 40 hours a week for, you know, however long it was, four or five weeks for Maka was pretty similar. And you both described that, like my takeaway from it is you both did it just because not only the physical the side of things, but because it made you hard and to win Kona, you had to be hard. But then I've talked to some other guys on this podcast as well. So sort of specifically who I think of is Tim Reed and Tim Van Berkel. And they're both sort of of the belief that, that everyone overtrains um, and, and that less is more. So they'll do sort of 20 uh, at most sort of 25 hours a week. Um, in your opinion, do you do you think that that sort of lower um, volume of training, it's just impossible to win Kona? Like, and do you know? Have you have you talked to or, or heard of of what the modern guys are doing and 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 how much volume the, the guys who are winning it are doing? No, I mean, I guess on social media, I know the Norwegians are pretty transparent. They post their training on Strava, and to be honest, mate, I'm I'm on social media as little as I can be, um, but from what I've read and what I understand that they're high volume guys, they do a lot. 
And about 70 or 80% of it is sort of in that zone two, lower or mid sort of aerobic zone, which is what the textbook would, would tell you. But, mate, it's, it's horses for courses, I think. And, I mean, I, I'm not going to argue with what the two teams did. I mean, their results speak for themselves. They've won a lot of big races, those boys. So, you know, I, th- I think those 40-hour weeks, for me, serve their purpose, but also potentially cut my career short. I was, I mean, I was in my mid-30s by then. So I think I would have been well-served to bring that way back uh, but you get so used to a system and it made, I just used to love the training too. being up in Boulder. As funny as it may sound, those big weeks became easy for me. And I looked forward to them towards the end of my career, which is when I probably needed, needed them the least. and was also at the time when I was most susceptible to getting injured or overtraining, you know, as, as you sort of get to that late thirties, I remember in 2012, mate, I was, I was in unbelievable shape. I did the big block again and Again, I hurt my back in a similar way. It was 10 days before Las Vegas, actually, that year. So 70 point, So in 2011, 70.3 worlds was moved from um, sort of November to pre-Kona a month before or five weeks before, which was great news for me. So I switched my, in 2011, I switched my last lead-in race to Kona to be the 70.3 worlds in Vegas, which was the first year they brought it forward. And of course, I did the double that year by winning both. And that was my second 70.3 world title. And so in 2012, I was defending both world titles. And, you know, I had a, a really good start to the year. I raced Melbourne in a stacked field and had a great race off a very limited build-up. So, you know, that speaks a lot to what the Tims were saying. I know when I won Kona in 2011, I had a very busy early 2012 with sponsorship commitments. I had three separate trips to the U.S., the first five weeks of 2012 when I was meant to be training for Ironman Melbourne, which was the first or second week in March. And I got over those trips and I really only got a four, four weeks lead in of proper consistent training to Melbourne. So I didn't do the big block. I just did a couple of bigger rides. And, you know, and I, I know when I look back at the photos of Melbourne, I'm a lot bigger. So I had been in the one thing I had been doing through January and all that travel to America was getting the gym a lot because um, that's one thing I could do. And I looked at some photos of Melbourne the other day and you know, I, was, I was bigger than I'd been in Kona six months before. And I had a great race in Melbourne. Um, won that race. I think I ran a 2.37 on a what I would consider to be not an easy run course. Um, certainly the second half of it's not easy. A lot of short, sharp hills from Beach Road down to the different beaches and then little short, sharp hills on the path back up to Beach Road. And I think the run was slightly long that year. I want to say I ran 2.37 from memory. I don't remember. I didn't race with a Garmin or anything. I just remember Cameron Brown saying it was 42 and a half kilometers. So it was a touch long. But I guess that sort of speaks to what the Tims were saying. That was a really good, strong performance off a much more abbreviated lead-in. And then I, I, I went to the US and did Eagle Man. Uh, a half I had a great race as well. I had a, a nice little ding-dong battle with Greg Bennett and managed to get the better of him. Um, I won the race. He got second. It was a, a really, yeah, it was just a tough race in hot conditions and had a big break after that. Um, yeah, because as I said, I was defending the two world titles and did my usual push phase. And, you know, I got through the push phase really well, I thought. I, I was feeling strong. Well, I was starting to get a few niggles, a few aches and pains, which I'd never had before, but I was starting to get a few aches and pains in the body. 
And I was still you know, really disciplined with the body work. I was getting a lot of massage, dry needling, Cairo once a week. But yeah, just a few. I mean, I was 39. So obviously you have to expect there's going to be some wear and tear. Uh, but what happened was I think it was about 10 days before Las Vegas, I was in the gym up in Boulder and I was rushing through. I had to get three sessions done. I had a photo shoot down in Denver at lunchtime. So I'd run early, I'd swum, and then I was in the gym and I was just racing through my routine. And I wasn't even lifting. I was just bending over to move a weight. Then I did the same thing in my back that I, I mentioned to you before that I'd done when I bent over to pick my daughter out of the cot. And so I think I knew how to, I, I, you know, I wasn't panicking because I thought, oh, I've done this before. I know what to do. And one thing that happened though was I put this anti-inflammatory cream on my skin. <laughs> the doctor wanted to give me an anti-inflammatory, but it was on the band list. I couldn't take it. So I had to just use the uh, topical cream, which was, not as powerful, but I had a skin reaction to it. I ended up getting dermatitis. And um, yeah, I, I think my body was just breaking down. You know, looking back, I, I just think maybe those 40 hour weeks, it was just a bridge too far that year. And I really needed to be reeling it back in. And as fate should have it, I went to Vegas thinking I'm, oh, I'm no chance. I mean, my, my skin, it looked like I had a chemical burn. Actually, when I, when I turned up at the hospital, the doctors thought I had a chemical burn but it was from this cream I was putting on. It was contact dermatitis and I was getting this inflammation under the skin and um, all this fluid in my legs. And I had to sit on this inverted, I had to lay on this inverted bed for an hour a day to drain all the fluid out of my legs into my groin. So I was doing this every day leading up to the race in Vegas. And I remember the last two or three days before the race, I was just laying in an ice bath all day. My skin was so itchy, but I, I still, I consider it one of my greatest races. I, I got a silver medal. Uh, behind Keenlay, Sebastian Keenlay. And the whole race, actually, I was just waiting for my body to break down, but it didn't. Got through the race and got a silver medal. And I remember getting back to Boulder and I had to see the doctor and she just said, your skin's terrible and your back's not getting better. And my back had hurt me a little bit in the race, but it's a much shorter race than an Ironman, so you can get through. Um, and the doctor said to me, you know, I think you, you're going to struggle in Kona. You know, you need to really have a look at what you're going to do the next four or five weeks. And of course I was never not going to Kona. So I went and I did struggle. I ended up, I think I got up to Harvey in third or fourth place that, that year. I was in a good position, but I couldn't hold the time trial position coming back into town. Um, ended up getting off the bike in, I don't know, fifth or sixth spot. I don't know where I was. I got dropped by that main front group with about 30 K to go. And I thought, well, I'm still in this if I can run a good marathon, but I, I ran my worst marathon ever. I think ended up walking for the first time and yeah, my back was, and you know, I guess you look at that and you might argue, well, potentially those, those big weeks, you know, there's an old saying, if you don't take a rest, your body will force you to. And, you know, I look back at that and, and think, you know, a couple of big years back to back to back, you know, and I'm sure Chris said the same thing. When you win in Kona, you get very busy. Um, and then, you, you know, you're another year older as well. You've got to factor that into the mix. Your, your body's not exactly the same a year later. It's not for better or worse. You know, sometimes the extra year helps you. I think as you get into your late 30s, cardiovascular, you're still as strong as ever, but the, body, the body's not as strong, needs more recovery. So, I mean, yeah, these are all lessons you learn in hindsight and you look back. And so, I mean, who knows? I, I don't want to sit here and say the way I did it was the way. Sounds like from what you're telling me, Chris did it a similar way. Um, 
you know, the athletes I'd spoken to, Welshy, Mark Allen, Dave Scott, Pauline Newby Fraser, McKeeley, I know they had done a big push phase as well. So they'd done that sort of big four or five week block once or twice throughout their years that, you know, they structured their season around that. So, um, but you know, things, things advance, training techniques advance. I mean, I, I look now, I see a different sport. I see how scientific the Norwegians are and how they train really specifically. And, and I was so disciplined hitting their, their exact zones in each session. You know, that's always been the theory, but to do it in practice, you know, it's hard. You get caught up with other groups and other athletes, other training partners. And um, so, mate, I, I don't want to sit here and say my way was the right way. It seemed to be the right way for me. But, I mean, I always look back and think, too, what happens if I'd eased off some of those big weeks later in my career? You know, potentially I wouldn't have got that injury in 2012, late in the year. I think those things happen for a reason. You know, I think you've just, you're so worn down. Um, you know, it just happens because your body's at breaking point. Yeah, and I mean, I guess the the thing is that you talk about that 2012, but you were a three-time Ironman World Champion before that, and and I think at that point everyone regarded you as the the best to ever do it. So it clearly did work while it worked, didn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I and I sort of want to get onto a couple of those years. We, we've talked about your your debut where you came second, and then the win in 08. Um, but but I I think the years I'm most curious about are particularly the 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 2009 2010 and and 2011 years. So you you won in in 2008. You went on to defend it in 2009 and and, and won back to back Kona's. Um, and then in 2010, um, you were I, I guess as as heavy favourite as as there's ever been in Kona. Maybe um, with Jan Frodeno being the exception the, the last few years. Um, and this is when I was really like I was a kid just watching Kona, and I was fascinated by it. And and all the talk going into 2010 was just that you were going to win three in a row. Um, there, like there really wasn't wasn't even a question of it in most people's mind that that was going to happen. Um, can you maybe take me into the lead into 2010 and and how that looked for you, and and then how the race played out as well? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the year for me was a good year. I, I won a lot of races in 2010. Um, you know, 2009, I was absolutely wrapped to defend the title, but I don't think my performance was anywhere near as good as 08. 08 was a windy year. I think I performed well. I, I felt like I was in control. I got the lead just after halfway into the run. It felt like I had an extra gear if I needed it, um, but was very conservative that second half marathon, just knowing what could happen there uh, at, at, you know, on that island and in that race. 2009, I felt a lot of pressure to defend because it's all everyone talked about and it's all I thought about. You know, how hard it was going to be. Only three men have been able to do it. You know, of course, you want to add your name to that list. And I, 2009 started really well. I, I think Macra and I went head-to-head in a race in Singapore. I had a great race there. I think that was my first race in 2009. I won a couple of good races on the mainland in the US. I won Muskoka again, which was my lead-in race um, a month before. And, and again, ran, I think, a 110 or a 111 on a pretty hard course and just felt quite comfortable doing it. Um, you know, you never want to go too deep in a race when you've got Kona coming up on the horizon. But what I did do, I, I, I panicked a little bit in 09. I just felt the pressure of wanting to defend and wanting to replicate everything to the letter that I'd done the year before from the training blocks to the sessions, at what time of the day, how many reps, everything. I wanted to replicate everything. And 
long story short, I won that race in Muskoka, drove back through the night with Marinda Carfrey and um, Richie Cunningham, who raced Muskoka as well. We, I think we had to leave Muskoka at midnight. It was a three and a half hour drive back to Toronto. We had a five or 6 a.m. flight back to Boulder. Arrived back in Boulder, spent all day cleaning and moving out of our condo and then had a 2.30 pickup the next morning to go to Denver. For, we had a 6 a.m. flight to Kona. So I just raced, didn't really sleep well for two nights, packed, travelled out to Kona, and then I got out there and wanted to do a, a big brick session three and a half weeks out because that's what I'd done the year before. You know, go to the pool in Kona, swim the 12 400s. It's only 400 yards, and I used to do it. I used to swim the 12 400s just on a 450 or 455 send-off, um, have some breakfast, go straight into the same race breakfast I'd have and then ride the course with a few efforts and then have a run off the bike. So I, I, I attempted to do that session on the Wednesday. I'd raced on the Sunday in Muskoka and had those two tough travel days, not a lot of sleep. And I'd come down from altitude, though, so I was chock full of red blood cells. But like I said to you before, that, that's one thing. Being acclimated to the conditions is another. And I remember I did the swim that year. I think I had a few training partners, Joe Lornan and her husband. I think Cameron Brown was with us, Luke McKenzie. I can't remember if they did the swim. I know I did the swim. Joe and Armando did the swim with me. And then I think Cameron and Luke met us and, and we rode the course. And I was just riding easy, but I ended up way off the front. I remember Luke riding up to me saying, dude, what are you pushing the pace for? It's an easy ride. And I actually thought, oh, am I? I didn't think I was. I just, I was, that's often the sensation you get when you come down from altitude and altitude works for you, you feel like you're doing it easily. So I was obviously pushing the pace on them in an easy ride. But what happened was I hadn't acclimated to the conditions and about 120K into it, I fainted. We had a, we had a drink stop and I fainted in the restroom at Kauai High. People who know Kona know there's a shop everybody stops at on the way down from Harvey. And you go down these stairs into the toilet and Armando, who's a friend of mine, he, he, he said to me, you're as white as a ghost. And he walked in, I was sitting on the floor in the, in the toilet and he went and bought me all these drinks, but it was too late by then. I think I was too dehydrated and too depleted. Anyway, we started riding back and I was just wedged onto the back of the group, hanging on for dear life. And it was an easy ride. And then Cameron Brown got a flat tire. And Joe, Joe Lorne said, I'm going to keep riding. And I said, I'm going to keep going with Joe. I, I don't think I can stop. Anyway, the group caught us about the airport. So about 40 kilometers still to ride. And I crammed so badly. Armando was pushing me on the bike. And then by the time we got to the airport, I had to clip, clip both legs out. I couldn't even, my legs were cramping so badly. And Armando literally just pushed me all the way back to the pool in Kona where I fainted again. You know, they called the lifeguards and put me on a spinal board. And it was, I guess it's a funny story. I, I, I woke up and the lifeguard was standing over the top of me saying, this looks like the guy who won last year. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, I am the guy, but I was too embarrassed to say anything. And, so we're still three and a half weeks out from the race, but it was a stupid thing to do. So, I mean, to your point about training and, and pressure and all of those things, no one, nobody's immune to it. And at that point in my career, I didn't have a coach or anyone sort of with me day in, day out, and I probably needed it. Um, you know, we had a new baby. Austin was born. He was only five months old at that point. I had a lot of sponsorship commitments and, you know, it's just hard to stay on top of everything. Um, but yeah, I remember even still going out to try and do a long run the next morning after that. And I went and saw the massage therapist I always saw in Kona and he, he, my legs were like green. He said, mate, what have you done? And when I told him, he kicked me out. He said, you're an idiot. You've, you've probably just ruined your race. So obviously I had my tail between my legs and I did everything to try and 
turn it around. And I must say, though, in the race, I still felt, even though I had, it was one of my greatest performances, 09 mentally, I think, because I, I felt great in the swim, came out with the lead group, but I never felt comfortable. And all the big bike power was behind. I was in a group with Andy Rayler, Andy Potts, Rasmus Henning, Dirk Bockel, a lot of the guys who'd come up from the ITU, from the Olympics the year before. But the big bike power was coming from behind. Norman was bringing a group up um, and, and Macca was in that group and Cameron Brown and they caught us at about 140K. And I, was, I guess I was starting to feel better at that point, but yeah, my legs just felt heavy that day. And I, to be honest, it's just one of those things, you know, you look back and think, I had a conversation with Mark Allen before that race and he said something to me that I kept thinking about that whole race. He said, you know, when you've, when you've won this race, all your competitors know you've won it. You're not just someone who has the potential to win it. You're actually someone who's won it. And he said that carries a lot of currency in the race. So all you have to do is just, if you're having a bad day at any point, just stay close to the front because everyone will be looking at you saying, oh, he's just biding his time, he's waiting. And that's what I tried to do in 09, just stay close to the front. And it gave me confidence. My confidence grew throughout the race. I started feeling better and better. And of course, I got off the bike. I was 12 minutes behind Lieto and didn't even think about him just tried to run the best I could and I caught him at about 34 35k and then when I went past that was the best I felt all day and it's funny you know you talk about the mental uh, component or the mental side of sport I suddenly was in the lead and those heavy legs disappeared and it was it was like a miracle and it was that was a huge lesson for me too just keeping your head in the game and never not quitting not making excuses you know I, I thought I was really mad at myself for doing what I'd done three and a half weeks out and you know but you know I kept my head in the game on race day which was the main thing so you know fast forward I know your question was about the next few years I went into 2010 thought I was in great shape had a great start to the year I think I started again with the traditional start of the season for me which was St Anthony's at Olympic the Olympic distance race in Florida which I finished third at Went to St. Croix again, crashed out that year, actually. I had a, I had a bike crash in St. Croix in 2010. Uh, got up to altitude. Yeah, I, f- I felt I had a, a good year. For, for me, there was, yeah, I mean, I, I, did, I think I felt less pressure that year than I had in 2009. Um, I, I, I felt I'd learned a good lesson in 2009. And, but, of course, like you said, yeah, all the talk going in was I was going for three in a row and I was the big favourite. But I also knew that. Andy Raylert, McCormack, you know, there was, a, there was so many, there were a lot of good guys. And I know that, I mean, I'm not sure if Chris mentioned it, but I, it was no secret to me. Those guys were doing some training together and they were all communicating about forming some sort of alliance or, or whatever it was. And so I, I knew about that. And I mean, I didn't take it personally. It's nobody, you know, when you're a competitor, nobody wants to see the same person win time after time. You know, I guess it's, you know, those guys were all competitors. So they, they wanted to, I didn't take it personally. They wanted to stop me winning three in a row. And um, I didn't feel like I had a bad race in 2010. I think Chris had a great race. I made a couple of tactical errors and, and I thought, you know, I thought I'd be able to bridge the gap up in the run. And I thought I might get a little bit of help on the bike too. But I guess when you've won two, you don't get any help. Uh, and that's fair enough. But when that, that split went, I know there was a lot of spotters on course and they were saying, you know, that group up the front, they're all working together. They're sharing the work you know, you guys should do the same. And I had some good, I had some, you know, decent firepower in our group, but I think they just wanted to leave me on the front. So I did, I rode on the front for about a hundred K and I was happy to do it. 
but I thought I might have got a little bit of help at some someone, you know, at least someone taking up the pacemaking or but yeah, I felt I ran a good run. I ran a good marathon that year, 241. It was just the whole the sum total of the whole race just wasn't good enough. I think three better guys. Macro had an incredible race. He raced really well. You know, it's interesting, you know, with with Chris, I know the two years he won there, he'd been written off. And, you know, you shouldn't ride off a champion. I think in 07, he'd raced there five or six times. And, you know, he went there the first time as, as a, a big name and a big favourite and had sort of had a few tough years and everyone rode him off in 07. He had a great race. And then the same thing happened in 2010. I certainly didn't underestimate him. I knew he would be one of the guys to beat. He was always one of the guys to beat there. So, but yeah, my, I ran a 241 that year. I, I, I think I had a good race without having a great race. It was a really strong race, but I needed to make some changes. I had some equipment that wasn't up to scratch. So fast forward to the following year, I made those changes. And, you know, it was a bumpy road earlier in the year. There's some legal battles and I'd been promised things that weren't delivered. And I went and did some wind tunnel testing of my own. And it was just, it was glaringly obvious. I mean, it had been glaringly obvious for a couple of years. 2009 was the year that time trial specific triathlon bikes or super bikes came into sort of existence. You know, Trek released the speed concept, Scott released the plasma, specialized the shiv, all these non-UCI legal triathlon bikes that were built, purpose built for, for time trialing to be aerodynamic. They sort of hit the market in 09. You know, prior to that, we just sort of had more like road bikes. Some of them had, I guess, more aero bladed tubing, but you would just you would just stick a sort of those time trial bars on the front of them. So it wasn't as the bikes back then were nothing like they are now. Couldn't even compare them. And but that was, a, I think, the tipping point around 09, 010. It became evident, and people were doing wind tunnel testing not only for their position but for the bikes. And I, I did that, and you know, I I knew what I'd been promised hadn't been delivered, and I did some testing, and I knew I had to update my equipment. So that's what I did. And you know, not a lot changed in 2011 for me, except my equipment and my mindset. I was rather than I, I, I guess I had a strategy in Kona. Of swimming, I wanted to always be in the first five or eight athletes in the swim, you know, marking the main competitors on the bike, but, you know, riding in a way that I could unleash a 240 marathon. I mean, I always aimed to run a 236 there. That was my goal, and I never quite got there. I don't think I ever paced my marathons well enough. I went out too quick. I wasn't as patient as you see Patrick, and, um, you know, when some of those runs Patrick Lung has had have been amazing, where he's just ticked away the kilometers and the miles within one or two seconds of each other, all of them. I mean, that's the way you run a marathon, particularly in the heat. And especially when you biked first, um, I was always a little uh, impatient. I, I think that, you know, for me, 2011, you know, that, those performances when I won 70.3 worlds um, on a Cervelo that was painted black and then changed bikes again. And then one cone on a, a specialized, you know, my actual average power was lower than it had been the year before. I was just on a more aerodynamic setup. Um, a lot of it was the bike. It was also the first year I wore an aerodynamic helmet in, in Kona. Um, the first four years I raced, I just ro raced in a road helmet. So I think all those things, you know, I got in the wind tunnel, I could see I was giving up minutes, minutes and minutes. And, you know, I was of, always of the belief that cooling was the most important thing. I, I think it was 2009 when we were racking our bikes in transition, we had to rack our helmets the day before the race as well. I think these days you, you put your helmet in the transition bag, but those days I wanted the helmet on the bike. And out of all the pro men or the top 20, I was the only one who had a road helmet. And I remember that uh, 
the editor of Triathlete Magazine or the, the publisher was saying, mate, you're taking a big risk. That's a big gamble. And I just thought, well, I guess I am taking a bit of a gamble, but my gamble is that, you know, dissipating heat through your head is going to pay dividends later in the race. Um, of course, what also happened was that aero helmets got better. You're able to get ventilation. So you're able to keep your head cool and get the aerodynamics as well. So in 2011, that was also one of the changes I made. I, I, I wore an aero helmet for the first time. I was on a much better bike. And I know my average power for the ride in 11 was a little lower than it had been in 2010, the year before. And I, that doesn't tell the whole story. Average power is one number. I mean, obviously, depends how you ration your energy, the first half to the second half, um, how constant and steady your output was. But I guess for me, the two big changes, nothing really changed in my training. I think I implemented a little bit more strength into my, my routine in 2011. I was getting older, so I was in the gym a lot more. Um, and I had a good friend, Pete Coulson, who told me to, to really hit the leg press a lot and also get on the rowing machine. So I did that a lot in early 2011, got on the rowing erg. More specific and heavier lifting in the gym. Uh, dropped the rowing, but kept the kept the, the the gym work and the weight, the strength work going all the way through right up to Kona. So that, I guess that was one thing that was different. The equipment was different, and my mindset was a bit different. I was instead of having that strategy of just waiting for the run, I just thought, well, the first move that goes on the bike, I'm going with it. Um, and I did that in Vegas. The front group was riding together, and Chris Liedo came through, and I sort of went with him. To some degree, he still had a quite a sizable lead on me off the bike in Vegas, but I was second or third to hit the run course that year ahead of the front men's group. And then I, I was just determined to do the same thing in Kona. He, he came past me. I think I was leading the race in 2011 and he came past me right near where the airport is. So probably 20K into the race. And I just put my head down and went with him. Sat about 20 metres behind him. Actually, I think Marino Vanhunaka came as well. So I was in third. I sat third. I sat about 20 or 25 metres behind Marina. I just put my head down. I said, I'm not going to look back. I'm not going to see who else is coming. I'm just going to ride. And that's what I did. Liado was on the front. Marina was second. I think I was third from memory. And it wasn't until we got out to Waikoloa, 40K into the race, I looked back and Luke McKenzie had come with us. And that was the four. I looked back, I saw Luke, and then I couldn't see anyone else in the distance. So I thought, oh, this is the group then. And I didn't feel like I was riding well above myself at all. I felt very comfortable. So that was the group. So we rode and we were able to, in the end, put six or seven minutes on the front group, which had a lot of the contenders, most notably Andy Rayler, who'd done a 740 in Roth that year. So he was, I think he was one of the big favourites going into to 2011, as was Marino, because Marino had also broken the world record that year with a seven, I want to say it was a 742 in Austria. Um, and run a 240 marathon. So in my mind, they were the two big competitors for the, for the title that year. And I mean, they're amazing times when you think that was 10 years ago, you know, with the bike technology that we've got now and also the running shoes and the carbon uh, plate and the shoes. I mean, I think Marino ran a 238 or a 240 in Austria that year. It's a great run. So yeah, in my mind, they were the two main guys. And so to you, to answer your question, I know I've sort of gone off on a tangent, but for me that, that big training block was still the same. I think I, I think I knocked it back from five to four weeks in 2011. But the, I guess the big changes were more, more lifting in the gym, more strength work, different equipment and a different mindset. For me, they were the three big noticeable changes going into to the championship races in 2011. And, and probably also worth noting as well, 
I got sick at the start of 2011. I um, got that respiratory virus that was going around in Australia. I think I'm calling it the 100-day cough. And I was meant to race Ironman Australia early in the year, but I didn't, <clears throat> couldn't, couldn't race. I was so sick. And the interesting thing about that is I'd done all the training for Port Macquarie, but just didn't get, didn't get to do the race. So all that fitness was in, in the bank somewhere. I just, just waiting for me to make a, a withdrawal later in the year. So I guess I wouldn't say, you know, getting sick was a blessing, but it certainly wasn't a curse either. I just thought, well, I, you know, that they brought in the new rule that, you, you know, as a past Kona champion, I'd qualified for life. I thought when I won in 08, but they changed the rule a couple of years later. And then even past champions had to qualify or, or validate whatever the wording was, which made it harder. I think as you got older to do more than one Ironman in a year, certainly made it harder, but I, I did it. I, I, I wasn't able to do port, had that hundred day cough. I ended up coughing so much. I fractured two ribs as well, which didn't help. But again, it was just more enforced rest and I was still able to train lightly. And I validated for Kona by doing the Ironman in quarter lane at the end of June, got up to altitude. I think I had four weeks at altitude. Again, it was just a, like Melbourne had been the following year or two, yeah, the following year was just a very abbreviated sort of build up, <clears throat> did a, two long rides, two really long runs with a, with a second run that day. Um, and we got to quarter lane and won that race, I think in about eight hours, 15 minutes, brutally hot day that day. Anyone who's done that race in quarter lane knows that the water is, can be cold. That year, the water was 55 Fahrenheit, which is like, I think 12 degrees or something, but it got up to 40 degrees during the marathon and very, very hot conditions. But yeah, I got through. So it's just, you know, the whole year is a, is a jigsaw puzzle. And I was still able to do my push phase coming off the sickness and, and the racing quarter lane. I just had a good break. Um, so quarter lane was the last week in June. I had two really easy weeks and then started my push phase sort of the third week in July, like I normally would, but kept it to four weeks that year and had a, a two week taper into Vegas. Yeah, had a great race in Vegas. And then uh, four weeks later, Kona, um, yeah, was able to do the double, which is something I'm very proud of. But I think, again, there's always disruptions. We had the, I had that bike thing going on in the background. There was some legal action and, you know, that's always a disruption and a bit of stress. But, um, you know, I was just happy that I'd got over that illness. So I, I could see the glass half full, not half empty. Even though there was a lot of nasty business stuff going on in the background, I, for me, the training was a just a pleasant change. It was like therapy or a release. I was, I was loving it. That push, push phase that I did up in, up in Boulder from late July through to sort of mid to late August. Yeah. I, I just loved it. Um, really was enjoying the training and did, did a lot of it on my own that year. Had a couple of good reliable training partners for different sessions, but yeah, just so mate, I hope I've summarized 09, 10 and 11 for you. Um, sort of digressed and gone off. We could write a book. Yeah, I was just sitting there and I actually thought to myself, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm not even, uh, I'm not the host of this podcast anymore. I'm just listening um, to you telling stories. And, and I personally love it because this was the period in my life where I followed triathlon um, as, as much as like probably the, the period where I was a, a, like a fan, a pure fan of the sport. I hadn't touched a bike yet. I, I, I'd never really swam. I just used to love watching it, um, which is sort of, I think you might have said similar things where you you sort of would just watch Kona 
before you'd even participated in the sport. And, and that was that patch for me. Um, so hearing your, your account of all those stories is, is really interesting because it's just a different lens to what I saw it, um, when, when I was watching from the outside. Like, for example, um, in 2010 where, you know, Macca basically came out and said, oh, Crowey, Crowey sucks at bike riding. Let's let's all just ride off the front, um, and they did it. And I was a young kid, and like I was a big fan of yours, and I was sort of like, oh, how, how dare he do that? And I think you rode from memory. Sorry if this is wrong; it's all off the top of my head. I think you rode like four thirty nine, four hours thirty nine minutes um, in two thousand and ten. And then you came back the next year, um, and you rode again off the top of my head. I think it was like four twenty four, maybe maybe something like that. But it was about fifteen minutes faster than you had the, the year before. Um, and, and I thought, oh, Jesus, he must have changed everything. He must have started, you know, riding way, way more. But that wasn't the case at all. Um, in reality, you were you, you changed your equipment and, and you kept doing what you'd always done and and, and you actually pushed, pushed less power uh, average than the year before and, mm. and you rode 15 minutes faster and and looked, I think, like, you know, maybe outside of Chris, like the, the best cyclist triathlon I'd ever seen, um, maybe Luke, Luke Van Leer as well, but I couldn't believe the change. Um, so it does speak to, to maybe that sometimes there is a little bit more to, to the sport than just the training. Cause, cause you kept everything pretty, pretty much the same. Hey? Yeah, definitely. I think now technology has definitely infiltrated obviously our lives, but, but sport as well with nutrition and recovery, but, Equipment, it's, it's an important part of it. The training is still the most important part. That's the cherry on top, those extra percenters. But that's what you're talking. I mean, that, that's what we're talking about here. I, th- I think those splits, I think it was 437 or 430, 436 in 2010. It might have been 423. It was 13 minutes difference. Right. I know that. Yep. Yep. It was 13 minutes difference on the bike. And yeah, at a lower, a lower power. And, um, so, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I guess the tactics changed a bit as well. I didn't, I mean, it's not like that I couldn't have gone with them in 2010. I just, just, I just didn't think they would get a big enough lead and I thought I could run five to six minutes. Maybe it was a bit of complacency. And, and I also knew, I mean, it was no secret macro that, like you said, he was very vocal about it. I didn't take it personally. I, I took it as a compliment because if, you know, if I was so bad, how would I want two in a row with all of those guys in the race? And, you know, it's a non-drafting race. So if, if you want to drop someone on the bike, you don't need to recruit others. Just go off the front like Lieto did or Torby on Simbali or Marino. So a lot of it was gamesmanship. Um, and I never took any of it personally. But for my own part, I mean, I think every athlete at the end of a performance and at the end of a season, you evaluate everything what's worked, what hasn't worked, what could work better. Um, you know, all of those things from equipment to training to recovery. And, you know, a lot of the stories I've just relayed to with the challenges, I mean, that's, I mean, you've spoken to a lot of athletes now that that's got to be a common theme. Every, every athlete at every level, whether you're racing for world championships, you, there are obstacles and challenges. There's injury, there's hard luck stories, there's mechanicals, you know, every athlete gets that. That's, that's just part and parcel of the sport. I mean, Kona in 2013, I got two punctures during the race. And to be honest, I was very lucky with all that kind of thing. My whole career, I, I rarely got those sorts of mechanical interruptions to my race. You know, some people say, well, part of that's good management and planning. And it is, you, you make sure your equipment's 
the best and it's up to speed and it's new and it works well. Um, but sometimes you, know, you get a flat tire and there's nothing you could do about it on, on your tires. So yeah, I, I didn't overhaul too much. I, I think the big, the big thing for me was equipment and mindset for sure. And, and just getting in the gym, like I said, there's um there's so many more questions I could ask you about all of this and and I I feel like you have um you know maybe a day's worth of stories that that we've still left unturned but um I, I think we might we might sort of wrap it up here um probably the the other question I have is we've just covered what I would sort of class as it's definitely the 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 best days of your career but but you went on to have a a massive career after this like you you really only stopped racing um about two, two, two years ago, I guess, uh, 20, 20 sort of yeah. 19. Yeah. Yeah. 2019. Yeah. Um, and this is all sort of 2007 to 2011, um, touching on 20, 2012. You sort of talked about how, um, those massive blocks of 40 hour weeks with, with all this, the stuff you were doing, um, put a bit of a, you know, maybe they, they sort of, um, led to your career, not not sort of having the longevity you would have hoped, but when you said that, it sort of caught me aback. I'm like, hang on, you you went on to race for seven years after that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Do you do you consider do you is that because you don't look at them? Do you sort of look at them as two different careers? Like you you sort of that patch where you were, everything was was all roads to Kona, and you're obsessed with with winning the world champs, and and then that next that next phase. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, I wasn't the kind of person who could just leave the sport cold turkey um, and I wanted to stay involved. And I had a feeling that all those big training years would come into effect later on, but I, I didn't want to be all in on just one or two races a year anymore. Um, we had three children by that point and I'd had a great run. No regrets. I'd, I'd enjoyed it. We traveled as a family and lived overseas for five or six months of the year for a long time. Um, had homeschooled our children. Our eldest was now getting to the point where, you know, it was probably not, not great to be still homeschooling. And we always said when, when our son, Ozzy, when he started school, um, we were doing a bit of homeschooling in the, in the young years, but when he started sort of more first class and that, we, we didn't want to first and second class be homeschooling. And, and Mary wanted to go back to work uh, as well. Um, she was working part-time. So there were, there were a lot of factors that played into it. But yes, basically it was after 2013, it wasn't all about just Kona anymore. It was what I would like to call more of a balanced life, even when you still are racing at the highest level. And I wanted to target shorter racing. I didn't, I didn't want to do the long rides or runs anymore. You know, my two oldest kids were playing sport on weekends and I didn't want to miss that. Uh, I just wanted to be there for more, for more things. So I thought I could have the best of both worlds. I could ease myself out of the racing scene, you know, still be competitive. I, I didn't have to race 13, 14 times a year. I mean, I think in 2019, I raced five times. Um, I want to say 2018, it wasn't even that many. 2017 was probably only three or four as well. So I, I, I picked and I carefully picked the races I wanted to do. And I, I wanted to race hard races with great competition because I think you know most competitive people that that's what you want that's where the challenge is and that's where the fun is testing yourself and, and I was also interested to see off a much lighter training load what sort of level I could hit so I was only training probably 15 to you know a big week would be 20 hours 
in those years. So, um, yeah, but it's for a lot of the reasons you mentioned. I just didn't want to stop the sport because I loved it too much. But I didn't. I couldn't see how I could do Ironman any other way than the way I'd done it, which was all in from January to December. And you know, I just didn't think it was fair on everyone else. They'd or they'd you know sacrificed enough and supported me enough and given enough, and it was time for me to give a little back. And I was yeah, it just happened to be a timing thing. It was the right time to do it. So yeah, interesting. Um, just 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 last question from me, and we've sort of touched on on lots of different sessions you've done, but. When all said and done, looking back on everything, um, what would you classify as your favourite session that, that you that you sort of ever did? Oh, so many good ones. Um, one that was always satisfying was the hundred hundreds in the pool when you when you knock that one over. What else? You know the big the the big race simulations or brick sessions up in Boulder. I loved, and I'd always have company. Uh, Marinda Carfrey would always accompany me. Julie Dibbins, Tim O'Donnell. I remember Rennie, when Rennie and Tim were going out, they weren't married. Rennie ringing me, asking me if I might if she brought her boyfriend along training. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Tim's, of course, gone on to have a Hall of Fame career on his own. So um, that were fun, fun. I love those summers up in Boulder and I miss them. But a couple of sessions I remember I used to do this. It was like a 100-mile ride, 160K. The first 100K had a 40K climb in it. So you'd ride tempo out to the bottom of the climb and then I'd sit on sort of somewhere between Ironman Watts or half Ironman Watts up this 40K climb. And then when you get to the top of 40K climb, you're at a town called Estes Park, which uh, I think is, if you've seen the movie Dumb and Dumber, the big white hotel, that's, that's Estes Park. That hotel's in Estes Park. We used to ride past that hotel. So you'd stop there, have a drink stop. Then you'd come down. It was Then it was like a... 30k descent where you'd i'd pedal hard to try and push iron man what's on the descent with tired legs and then i'd do some time trial work on the bottom usually a one hour time trial or a 40k time trial uh, we used to have this 40k loop i'd try and ride around it in under 55 minutes and then we'd meet someone someone had usually it was Rennie's coach siri she would drive the car out and have an esky full of drinks and our running shoes and we'd have a little mock transition set up and it was a mile. This road was a mile long. It was called Monarch Road. And we used to do mile repeats up and back. And yeah, you do anywhere from, I'd do 10 or 12 mile repeats off the back of that 160K ride. And I'd try and run them at between 3.30 and 3.45 per kilometre pace off quite short rest. So that was a, it was always a satisfying session. It's just a long one. And when you can get that one done and get through it, yeah, you've got confidence that you're in good shape. Uh, but another little, I guess, little variation I used to put on that one is I'd sometimes I'd run to the track and do the mile repeats on the track or do four two milers so four four lots of 3.2k on the track so it ended up being yeah close to 15k of running so that, that were big days and, and again I'd try and I'd try and descend the two mile repeat so I'd try and start at six minute mile pace which is 345s and then descend down to 545 or 540 mile pace which is in the 330s per kilometer and then a 520 um, per mile pace, which is a what's that? I don't even know. I'm hope, I used to know the conversion very quickly, but then I'd finish with a the last two miler. I'd just try and run in ten minutes, so five minute miles, which is about three ten per kilometer pace. So yeah, they, they were big sessions, and, and the reason I'd increase the speed and not just do Ironman speed is because, as I said to you, I was always training, usually training for the seventy point three worlds as well as Kona. 
So I wanted to bring a bit of that sort of intensity into the workout. But yeah, they, they were good. They were good long days, and then go and jump in Boulder Creek or in the ice bath afterwards. That was they were very satisfying sessions when you finished. Yeah, it sort of it's, it seems to me pretty fitting that that your favourite session and and the ones you remember fondly were the big ones. You know, hundred hundreds in the pool, that that massive race simulation brick brick session. Um, it sounds like you just got a, got a lot of joy out of training um, and a lot of joy out of out of the uh, maybe the way that, that those big sessions made you feel. Yeah, they were good. They were, actually, there's another session I should mention. Early in my career, I got invited to train with the Australian team. And um, I'd finished fourth, actually, in a World Cup race in Auckland. And the, the Australian high performance manager invited me to train. The Australian team were having a training camp. And that was at the end of 96. So I was still, I was still a uni student at the time. But I went and trained with them. And Brett Sutton was the head coach. We did this track session one time. Three 200s was the warm-up. And then and we'd swam, we'd swam 6K in the morning and then ridden hard. And then we had to meet at this grass track. And it was a who's who of Aussie triathlon. There was a lot of big names there. And yeah, we did the three 200s. Then we had to do, uh, I think it was three 400s. And he wanted them all run around the minute. And then we had to do a mile. And he wanted the mile as he wanted us to race uh, the mile. So we did that. And then we had to go back to another uh, couple of 800s that he wanted all around two minutes. And then we finished with a 400 for time. Um, just like a race, he put everyone in, in their own lane. And I mean, that, that session I did 25 years ago um, and I still remember it. So that must have been memorable as well, just because of who was there as much as what we did. But it's not always the long ones. I think it's the ones you remember are the challenging ones for whatever reason, because they were hard or they were long or they were a combination of long and hard. I think they're the sessions. I know they're the sessions that I remember. Awesome. Yeah, that um that track session sounded pretty brutal, by the way. But <laughs> yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, Eve, for coming on, uh, Craig. It was, uh, it was, it was an absolute honour just to sit back and listen to you tell those stories. Um, and from a personal perspective, um, yeah, they're 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 some of the the most interesting stories in, in the in the world of triathlon for me because I was such a big fan at the time. So yeah, I can't thank you enough for coming on, and and I, I appreciated every second of it. My pleasure, Jack. Thanks for thanks for the invitation. Awesome. Thanks, mate.